Thank you again very much. All right, well, we want to um, continue basically trying to answer the question, how are we to please God in our own country, in our own culture, in light of what appears to be an increasingly hostile environment for Christians, as well as an increasingly secular viewpoint, worldview uh, in our country as well. And the, the goal, I guess you could say, is to answer that question in light of um, four different books we're going to be going through, the book of Acts, the book of Daniel, the book of 1 Corinthians, as well as the book of Revelation. And so we're taking one chapter or so each week from these different books and looking at what they have to say about how to think about and how to respond to what's going on in our country, in our culture, that we might please God in our response. And so this morning, we want to look at Daniel chapter 1. So if you turn to the book of Daniel, last week we were in the book of Acts, this week we'll be in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. The period of history that this is, is according to what we find just in this first chapter, it covers the period of 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. And so it's during the time of the Babylonian exile. Uh, There were three different exiles or stages of the exile that happened um, as God judged the nation of Judah and through the Babylonians and and brought uh, people from Judah to Babylon. And Daniel was a part of one of the first exiles. He was a part of that first uh, exile from Judah to Babylon. And as I said, it was all a part of God's judgment on Judah for their idolatry, for their rejection of God's covenant. And the book is broken down into history and prophecy. The first six chapters are what some people would call hero stories, true stories, but six stories that have to do with Daniel and his three friends and things that are going on historically. The last chapters, the last six chapters, 7 through 12, are prophecies, uh, visions that Daniel saw and that he communicated. Some have said uh, Daniel is the Old Testament revelation because of what we find in the latter part of the book of Daniel. Daniel is the writer of the book, and he is the main character of the book. The theme of the book is the sovereignty of God, which is uh, a very encouraging thing to think about in light of all that we're going on because as things uh, seemingly go in a direction that it's hard to understand why they're going in that direction, and sometimes we feel like things are very chaotic and confused. From God's perspective, they're not chaotic and they're not confused. God is very much in charge and in control and on top of what's going on, and that is meant to be a huge comfort for those of us who are looking to him and trusting in him. And so this book is meant to be a book of hope in light of um, the people of God actually being under a, a pagan government, a government that does not recognize the true God. Some of you may be familiar with the Bible Project. We've used their videos here teaching at times, and they give a very helpful summary of what's going on in the book of Daniel They'll talk about the pattern that you see in Daniel this way. They say, human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power. They say they use the word beast because the the visions that Daniel will see have to do with these great beasts that represent kingdoms. So human beings and their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong and don't acknowledge God as their true king. And so that's what we find going on then in the book of Daniel, and we can certainly see that same kind of thing in our own day because it's consistent with um, all governments to one degree or another. But they also highlight not only the pattern that we see in Daniel, but what they call the promise that we see in Daniel. God will one day confront the beast in all of its various forms throughout history. He will rescue his world and his people are bringing his kingdom over all the nations. And so this book is a very hopeful book, a very encouraging book. And so it's going to be, I think, a very helpful thing to think through as we uh, look at the book of Daniel. So let me read the first chapter for us. Uh, The reason why I've entitled this Rejecting the Government Meal is because of what it says in verse 8. So let me just read this for you. 
Verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. This is the word of God. Well, let me just begin by reminding us as Christians uh, the kinds of things we've been talking about for a number of months now that is the foundation for any response to whatever we're going through. And this is just one way to put what we find in the scriptures in terms of how we're to think about our lives as Christians. Good news for saints, you could say. Uh, Through faith in Jesus, God is pleased with us. We are pleased with God above all, and we live to please God above all. So we're in union with Jesus by faith, and God is pleased with us, which means he said of his son, uh, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, all those who are in union with Jesus by faith, he also looks at us and says, I am well pleased with all those who are in union with my son as well, which means he loves us fully and will love us forever. He'll never cast us off. He is satisfied with us because of what Christ has done for us and in union with Jesus. As a result, we are pleased with God as well because he's promised to be everything we need and everything we desire. And therefore, we've stopped looking for other gods. We've stopped looking for other means of getting what we need and and enjoying what we want to enjoy. We found in God, through Jesus, everything we could ever need or desire. So God is pleased with us. 
through Jesus and what he's done for us, and we are pleased with God in Jesus. And therefore, on that basis, his love for us and our love for him, we live to please God. We live to love. So we're not trying to earn anything by living to please God. We are living out of a relationship of love, his love for us and our love for him. And so when we look at Daniel and these other books, we're basically asking the question, how do we live to please God in light of what we see in the word of God? Just this week, um, our president, um, President Biden, um, began talking about government mandates. And these government mandates uh, have pretty far-reaching impact if they're implemented. There are people already beginning to argue that we should challenge these in various ways. But it obviously uh, lets us know where our president is and where his administration is in terms of what they would like to see happen, whether or not that actually comes about or not. And there are a lot of companies like Disney and others that are, have already begun to implement various kinds of mandates with regard to vaccines and other things. Uh, cities, New York City and L.A. and other cities are beginning to do the same thing in mandating various things. And um, our president, President Biden, uh, said, uh, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost all of us, talking about those who have not chosen to get the vaccination. And so obviously, for those who aren't voluntarily getting the vaccine, um, the viewpoint of our president and his administration is uh, that is a threat to everyone, and therefore there's increasing pressure um, that they believe ought to be uh, enforced by law and enforced by uh, whatever means they have to, to to make people comply. And so in the Christian community, there's this discussion about the issue of mandates, not just the issue of the vaccines, but the issue of mandates in general and the vaccine mandate in particular. And so um, some have asked me about that very thing, and so I'm going to try to address that uh, toward the end today, but I want us to think about uh, this question um, in light of what we find in Daniel chapter 1. And so the first thing, the first point I want to make is that we should not be surprised when governments oppose the true God and his people. So the points I'm going to be making are much bigger than the issue of the vaccine mandate, okay? I'm not just focusing on that. I'm talking about the relationship between uh, Christians and the government in general, in light of Daniel's experience and what we can see uh, in this passage and how the Bible talks about our relationship with government. And the Bible, in all kinds of ways, highlights the fact that human government, though intended by God for good, and is something that often does a lot of good in light of God's intent for government, still is filled with people who are not worshiping the true God. And therefore, it's going to come in conflict with uh, God and his people in various ways at various times. And sometimes the conflict is greater in some places than it is in other places. For years in our country, that conflict has been uh, minimum, minimal in various ways, whereas in the Soviet Union and in China and other places, it's been great. And now in our country, uh, that seems to be changing. But you'll notice in uh, verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. The land of Shinar, uh, if you track uh, it's the references to it in the Bible, that is where the Tower of Babel was built, was the land of Shinar. And so uh, the Tower of Babel is kind of a, a kind of paradigm in the Bible for man's rebellion against God and man asserting in his pride his independence of God, or at least trying to assert his independence from God. But we also see that even before the Tower of Babel, there's a reference to the fact that in the land of Shinar was where uh, Babel, the city of Nimrod, 
and his kingdom began. So the very first kingdom that we see referenced in the Bible is the kingdom of Nimrod that began in the land of Shinar. Um, You also see a reference to this with regard to Abraham when the king of Shinar and other kings uh, attacked the area where Abraham and Lot were living and they kidnapped Lot. And Abraham goes after them and defeats them and rescues Lot. You see it later on in Joshua where Achan uh, sees a beautiful mantle from Shinar as well as some other things and takes them. And as a result, Israel is defeated by that uh, disobedience. And then there's a reference in Zechariah 5 where it talks about a temple for her in the land of Shinar was built. And in the context, the temple is to uh, her in reference to wickedness. Her name is wickedness. A a temple was built to wickedness. And so uh, the whole idea of the land of Shinar and the, the, the whole kingdom of Babylon is a way of talking about kingdoms that are in opposition to the true God. And so it's helpful to to realize that that's where Daniel is. That is what Daniel is dealing with as he seeks to live out his life in a manner pleasing to God. In verse 2, where it talks about taking some vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and putting them in the temples there in uh, Babylon, it's obviously, that was something that they did um, in that day and time, Uh, to highlight their belief that the reason why they were victorious was because their God defeated the the gods of the people they defeated. So it was a way of saying our God, Marduk, or whoever might have been referenced there, is a greater God than, than the God Jehovah. And it's interesting that God himself ordained that that happened. So God uh, isn't afraid of being thought a weaker God. Because God knows who's in charge and who's not. So, but he will allow uh, that to happen. And what we see going on here is that uh, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is beginning in this chapter uh, not to show favor to Daniel and his friends by giving them choice food and by giving them a three-year education. He's not doing them good. He is enslaving them. They're already slaves. They're slaves in the land of Babylon. So what is he doing by giving them food and educating them and changing their names? He wants to enslave their hearts as well as their bodies. That's what's really going on here. He is not being kind to them. He is wanting to truly uh, subject them to the supreme assimilation. That's really what's taking place here. And it's helpful to think that through because... um, all pagan governments, and when I talk about pagan, I'm, I'm using the term in the sense of all those that uh, do not acknowledge the true God. That's what I mean. And do not, um, obviously, seek to live and reign in accordance with that. And so that's what's going on here, first of all, is that uh, Daniel is living his life, seeking to be faithful in that kind of context. And we need to see ourselves, to one degree or another, having to do the same thing. Uh, Secondly, we should not be surprised when believers suffer for the sins of others in their nation. And I wanted just to highlight this for just a second because Daniel was faithful before he got to Babylon. He didn't just start being faithful. Um, There's every reason to believe in light of other things the Bible says about Daniel is, is that he continued to live in Babylon like he'd already been living. But He was taken to Babylon as a result of the apostasy of his nation. Just like Jeremiah. Jeremiah suffered because of the apostasy of the nation of Judah. I think sometimes we may imagine that in our own country because there are so many Christians in the U.S. that we will never have to suffer like other Christians suffer in other nations. I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, Just because there are faithful believers in our country that are praying that that would not happen, God may ordain that it happen. And that's why we need to be prepared in light of that. 
For time's sake, I won't go back and highlight these scriptures, but in 2 Kings 20, it talks about an incident with Hezekiah where he brings in uh, some people who visited him from Babylon and shows them all of his riches. And Isaiah goes to him and says, um, so who are these people and what do they see? And he says, oh, they're from Babylon. They're from a long way off. And, and Isaiah says, and what have they seen? They've seen everything. And he says, well, one day they're going to come back and they're going to take it away. And they're going to take some of your sons and take them to Babylon. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel. And we see in 2 Kings 24, one explanation of why um, God judged Judah. It says in verse 3 of 2 Kings 24, Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive And so the reality is that Daniel was suffering because of his nation, a nation filled with people that refused to honor the covenant that they were under and rebelled against God. And so could that happen to us too as Christians in this country? It could. We should still pray that God would send revival, that we send awakening. He's done it before in our country. We should continue to pray that way and work toward that in various ways. But we need to understand that that kind of thing can certainly happen. And we want to be prepared to be faithful like Daniel and others were. Thirdly, we must trust that our God is in control of the governments that be and is at work to protect and provide for his people. Um, It's very apparent in verse 2 that the reason why Judah lost to Babylon in battle or in whatever conflict there was there at that point in time was because the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's a way of saying God determined that Nebuchadnezzar was going to win. God is in charge of what happens, the conflicts between governments and everything that happens in life. That's why it says in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That includes President Biden. That includes every other leader in the world. That the Lord, the the point of that verse is, the most free person at that point in time was a king. The king could do anything he wanted in his own realm. He could put people to death. He could let people live. He could have this person uh, for his wife or whatever. He was the freest person on the planet, on the human level. And God says, the freest person on the planet is still under my sovereign charge. And that's meant to be an encouragement to us as his people. In Proverbs 16.33, it says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Which means even if you flip a coin or you roll the dice, uh, God is even in charge of the littlest things that happen. We need not be afraid that there's... As R.C. Sproul would say, even a molecule or an atom that's running uh, out there free from God's sovereign control. But several times in this passage, it highlights the sovereignty of God. In verse 2, obviously it talks about the Lord giving Jehoiakim over into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. In verse 9, it says, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. God granted him favor. Uh, So that's why we pray, God grant Mark and Susan favor in the eyes of the Cambodian government because God is the one who grants favor. In verse 17, it says, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. That's why Paul could say uh, to gifted people, uh, Why do you act like you didn't receive that? Why do you think you're better than somebody else? Everything you have is a gift from God. Uh, the smartest people on the planet are only are the smartest people on the planet only because God has given the, given them that wisdom, and so uh, everything's a gift from God. And so those verses and just the whole tenor of the passage in chapter one highlights God's sovereignty over the the situation, even though Nebuchadnezzar didn't know it and would not acknowledge it. It did not deny it or prevent it from being the case. Psalm 33 says, The Lord looks from heaven, which means he's sovereign over all. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. 
He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So the passage is saying uh, having the greatest military on the planet is not going to keep you from being defeated. God is the one who determines what's going to happen. And it goes on to say, as an encouragement to those who are trusting God, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. What kind of fear of God are we to have as, as his children? That's a reverence for who God is and a rejoicing in the fact that he loves us and will take care of us. So that fear is a hope in God's loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. To keep someone alive in famine means God is doing things that would not happen naturally. Uh, People naturally die in famine. God says, I'm able to keep you alive in famine. Whether you have a job or not, whether you have food or not, I can provide for you and I can sustain you. You don't have to be afraid of what's happening. And so it goes on to say, For our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us as we have hoped in you. And so God calls us to trust him and then to love. To love the people around us in light of the fact that he loves us. Well, the fourth point is that we must be prepared to serve our government. There's no doubt that even though uh, in the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelation, governments are pictured as beasts that tear and kill and seek to overcome and subdue and destroy God's people. That's the way they're portrayed in these books. But that doesn't mean that governments are a bad thing in and of themselves. It just means that uh, when fallen men get power... They tend to abuse that power apart from the grace of God, apart from God's restraint. And when he releases his restraint, they act like beasts. And so we we want, on the one hand, to acknowledge what it says in Romans 13, that all authorities are from God, all governments are from God, and they're intended for good, to be a minister of good. Uh, to people, for people, to restrain evil, to encourage what is good. That's their intent. They have a good intent, and we should affirm that, and we should recognize that. Uh, Christians are not uh, anarchists, or we're not anti-government, or anything like that. And It's wrong to have any kind of spirit that's just, you know, I just don't want to be under any government. That's, that's not uh, a biblical way of looking at the government. Even when we're uh, frustrated with the government and we recognize that they're doing things that are foolish or even evil, Uh, we still need to affirm the goodness of government and we should be prepared to serve our government because that's what we see Daniel doing. When it says at the very end, verse 21, that he continued until the first year of Cyrus the king, uh, from the time that he went into Babylon to the first year of Cyrus the king, that was 66 years So the implication is he, uh, through this whole process, uh, was selected by King Nebuchadnezzar and became the king's personal servant. And he served Nebuchadnezzar and other kings, pagan kings, for 66 years and beyond. He was faithful to serve them uh, as much as he could with all of his resources, all of his wisdom, all that he could. And we should... um, desire to do the very same thing. In Jeremiah, he said um, in verse 4 of chapter 29, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters." And multiply there and do not decrease. So he's talking to people in exile in Babylon. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will have welfare. So we are to we are to be thankful for government. In terms of what God intends government to do. And we are to support it 
and serve it in every way that we can that's appropriate because it is a good thing. It brings welfare to everyone in the nation and it brings welfare to God's people as well. And so that's an important thing for us to to understand as the foundation for interacting with the government. Now, the last point here is that we must be prepared to disobey our government as well. And I want to explain why. Um, Daniel in this chapter was obedient enough to the government to serve there for 66 years and to do everything he could to serve the government. And yet in this chapter, it describes one point at which he was not in submission to the government. The king said, all these young men are to eat this and drink this. And it says very clearly that Daniel um, was going to refuse to do just that. Um, And so the question is, um, what's going on there? Why was that? And um, there are a number of different interesting things that have been um, put forward as reasons why he did that. The Bible doesn't go, you know, explicitly tell us exactly why. He said, I'm not going to eat the king's food and I'm not going to drink the wine. But here are some of the, the ideas that have been put forward. Some have said that food must have been food that violated the laws of the Old Testament, the food laws. And that's a very popular perspective, and that may have been part of it. Yet, later on in the book, he doesn't seem to be following the same uh, meal restrictions. So it seems like it was something that wasn't exactly uh, along those lines. Um, Some have said, well, this food was probably offered to idols, and so he wanted to prevent participation in idol worship. And that was true. That's what they did. They would offer their food uh, to a pagan deity. The problem with that perspective is, though, they would not only offer the meat and the wine, they'd offer the vegetables too. And so all of the food that they would have been provided, one way or the other, would have been one connected to idol worship in that culture. Um, some have said, well, meat and wine are um, party food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a festival. They're drinking wine and they're eating meat. And, that's, and they were in Babylon, and so they wanted to express mourning. That's not exactly what Daniel says, though. He doesn't say he wants to go into mourning because he's in exile. He says, I don't want to be defiled. Others have said he was just being ascetic. He was just, a, you know, he just wanted to... Um, make it harder on himself for spiritual purposes, so to speak. Again, that's not what he says. He, he says that he, in verse 8, Daniel made up his mind, made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or the wine which he drank. So it was an issue of defilement, not just wanting to be more spiritual by being ascetic or something like that. Some have said, well, he must not, have, he, it was just, um, it was a protest, no, it was kind of like saying, I don't want to serve the king of Babylon. Well, that doesn't fit either, does it? Because he willingly served the king of Babylon uh, for many, many years. Um, some have said it's because we all should be vegetarian. And that's not the case either because that wasn't their concern back then. They weren't sitting there thinking, should we be vegetarians? No, that's something we think about. But that wasn't the concern in that day and time. The last thing is very interesting. Many people have come to think that it was basically an issue of the whole dynamic of assimilation, but there was this desire to assimilate them into the culture, not only physically by enslaving them physically, but enslaving them in their heart and in their minds. And so there's a sense in which you could say it was a wisdom issue. Uh, Calvin has some really interesting comments on this. He says... Uh, Daniel was at liberty to eat and drink at the royal table, but the abomination arose from the consequences. So he would argue that it wasn't because Daniel would be violating some Old Testament law by doing so. He goes on from there to say, it was lawful for him and his companions to feed on any kind of diet, but he perceived the king's intention. So it wasn't just what they were being asked to do, 
It was why they were being asked to do it. Which is a very important point. uh, Because that's what a lot of people in our own day and time are wrestling with in our country. is not exactly what we're being asked to do, but why we're being asked to do it. What is the king's intention? Uh, He talks about the fact that Daniel uh, didn't want to fall away from piety and the worship of God and degenerate into the manners of the Chaldeans. He talks about the fact that when Daniel, first of all, went to the commander, uh, the commander says, you know what? Uh, I can sympathize with you, but I'll lose my head if I don't feed you these things. Daniel didn't stop there. He went to another person who was under the commander, the steward, um, and appealed again and said, hey, would you try this out for 10 days? Can we try this out and see? And um, Calvin talks about the fact that uh, he could have said something like, I have now thought of a new scheme by which you may both gratify us and yet not become chargeable with any crime so that Daniel would not be put off by one no. He would try to find a way that he could uh, maintain his faithfulness to God Calvin would say there was a sense in which he wanted to nourish his mind on the remembrance of his country of which he would have been directly forgetful. So anyway, I just share some of those quotes from Calvin to highlight the fact that he takes the tact that what was going on there is that um, Daniel understood what was happening, that it wasn't just an issue of food and drink. It's an issue of slavery. And um, the control of food, the control of knowledge, the control of names. You know what? Understand what's going on, why they renamed them? It wasn't because they just thought the other name sounded better. Um, the names meant something. They, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. It's all connected to Yahweh and the true God. Remind, their names remind them of the true God. The other names, Belteshazzar, means Mabel or Marduk, which was the pagan god in Babylon, protect his life. Shadrach means command of Aku, which was the moon god of Babylon. Meshach means who is like Aku, interestingly enough. Abednego means servant of the shining one, which is a reference to their god Nebo. So the renaming is about wanting them to begin actually not only making the transition geographically to Babylon, but making the transition in their hearts to Babylon. It was a matter of slavery. And I think that's why Calvin talks about the intention of the king and all that was going on. And that's why the Bible talks about um, Things like what we find in Romans 12 uh, when it says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, obviously Daniel knew that just like the commander could lose his head, he could lose his head. He knew he was risking his own life to say no. And so it's important that we realize that Daniel was willing to lay down his life to be faithful to his God. And he was doing it based on a wisdom issue, believing that the wise thing for me to do in order to maintain my faithfulness to God is this under these circumstances. We see the same kind of thing, obviously, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Sometimes we don't realize that the Lord Jesus was crucified in part because he would not submit to the authorities in that day and time. He would not submit to the Roman authorities or to the Jewish authorities. Now, he would pay his taxes, like the two drachma tax, even though he would say, I really don't have to pay this. But he said, Peter, go fishing and pay the taxes. But it says in John 5:18, for this reason, therefore the Jews, meaning the leadership of the Jews, were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he, he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So 
let me just briefly uh, try to answer the question, what do we do with government mandates? We've talked about this before, but let me just remind you of some of the things we've talked about and add a little bit to it. Obviously, as things go along, it's getting more and more serious. We could lose our job if we don't give in to the mandates. Later on, who knows, there might be other mandates that we might be like Daniel and have to uh, risk losing our own lives, not just our livelihoods. Um, But obviously, every situation is an opportunity to trust God and love people. So what are the principles that we've talked about? And I'll just add a little bit to it. I don't know if you can see this. It's a little smaller. We've talked about the fact that the rule is we are to gladly submit to governing authorities. That is Romans 13, right? And in Romans 13, uh, one of the key things that I think is helpful to realize is that Paul wraps up his discussion of Romans 13 in a way that is meant to remind us that uh, governments are intended for our good and we should submit to them, but they are not absolute in their authority over us. And how does he do that? He says in verse 7, Render all what is due them. He goes on to say, um, Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Which should remind us of what Jesus said when he was asked about taxes. Do do we pay taxes to Caesar? They were trying to trap Jesus. And what did he say? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. Which means government is not absolute. There is a limit to what they can ask of you. God um, is not to be traded in for the government. The government is not to become your God. And so uh, the rule is we gladly submit to governing authorities, but God in his word still is higher than governing authorities. And that's why I think Paul goes right into a discussion of love and the law in Romans 13. Because he says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another in verse 8. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So what is the higher authority than the government? It's God and his law. And his law tells us what love looks like. It tells us what it looks like to love our government officials. It tells us what it looks like to love every other person as well. And so the rule is we are to gladly submit to governing authorities except when they oppose the law of God, which is truly the law of love. And number two, except when they oppose the law of the land. Uh, opposing the law of God is like what we find in Acts 4, which Eric read earlier, and Acts 5, when Peter says we must obey God and not men. But there's a verse in Acts 22, verse 25, that I think is very interesting because Paul Uh, sometimes um, allowed the government to do things that they weren't supposed to do. He allowed himself to get beaten sometimes when he could have said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen and you don't have the right to beat me. Other times he said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen, you do not have the right to beat me. And so if you read Acts 16, at the beginning of the story of the Philippian jailer who gets saved, Paul is beaten and he doesn't say anything the end of the story they say uh, to the jailer let him out and he says wait a minute I'm a Roman citizen you come and let me out yourself he appeals to his Roman citizenship in one place in the very same story in the other place he doesn't here in Acts 22 he appeals again to his Roman citizenship he appeals to the law of the land that's why I'm talking about the constitution there is a valid place for appealing to the law of the land in light of what the government may do or not want to do. In, in Acts twenty two twenty five, Paul asks this question right before he's about to be beaten again. It says, But when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful? Not talking about the Bible lawful, but Roman lawful. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And the answer was, no, it's not lawful. And they said, Oop, okay, we'll do it. And so Paul could, in one case, appeal to the scriptures. In another case, he could appeal to the law of the land. And so I think it's valid for us as Christians to, to think about government mandates from both perspectives in terms of what the Bible actually says, in terms of what the government is trying to mandate, and in terms of 
the law of the land, the Constitution, which is the highest law. And all of our government officials are supposed to be in submission to the Constitution. They, they actually swear to do that. The president swears to uphold the Constitution. So we're not out of line by saying we want you to uphold the Constitution because that's exactly what we expect our government officials to do. Now, there are some qualifications here in light of just what I said about Paul. We may voluntarily and temporarily suspend the exercise of our rights if it seems wise and good. So Paul in Acts 16 could suspend his rights in one situation and uphold his rights and advance his rights in another situation. And so we should prayerfully consider what to do about the government mandates. Um, Another qualification is, is in light of Daniel chapter 1. We may suggest a legitimate and reasonable alternative to the government requirement when possible rather than simple defiance. As opposed to simply saying, I'm not going to do it, you can't make me, we might be like Daniel and say, can we talk about this? Can we see if there's a way we can achieve what you say you're trying to achieve without me uh, compromising? Um, I think that's a valid thing to ask in this situation, in this day and time. Is, are, is there only one option here, or could there be other options? And uh, try to work with people. The last thing is love is defined by God's word, not government mandates. There are a lot of people that want to argue that love simply means doing what the government says to do. It's very clear from Peter and from Paul that if that were true, uh, then they would not be loving. So it's more complex than that. And it takes into consideration all the things that, that we just said. Very, very quickly here, um, in light of what I just said, there are three different positions that people are taking right now, it seems, on mandates in general and maybe even with regard to the vaccine mandate. It is a sin not to follow the mandates. And that's what I was just touching on with regard to the issue of loving your neighbor. Some would say it is a sin not to uh, follow, follow the mandates because you're not loving your neighbor. And I would say, looking at scripture, uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you just blindly follow the government especially if they're trying to mandate things that under the Constitution they don't have the right to mandate. Um, The other position that I've heard some Christians argue is that it is a sin to follow the mandates, that you're you're giving up your rights and your liberties and your freedoms, and you're just encouraging tyranny. And therefore, if you submit to the mandates, you're sinning. I would say both of those are, are not true. Uh, was Paul uh, encouraging tyranny when he allowed himself to be beaten with rods and not uh, encouraged them to remember he was a Roman citizen? I don't think he was encouraging tyranny by choosing not to do that at that point at that time. The third option is every person must be convinced in his own mind. And I get that Uh, from Romans 14. I need to wrap up here so I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but if you go to Romans 14, the context is uh, disputable matters, things that Christians can legitimately disagree on. And Paul says, uh, let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. The reality is, in the Christian community, we are divided on what to do here. Some people have been vaccinated, some people haven't. So how are we to look at each other? Well, we're not to condemn each other and we're not to despise each other because of our decision either way. That's what Paul is arguing for in Romans 14. We are allowed each of us to make our own decision. We are to um, make sure that we don't fall into the category of thinking that uh, everybody's sinning one way or the other, whichever position that they take. Um, The reality is that some may be convinced that the government is overreaching itself and still get the vaccine and follow the mandate. Others may say this is a government overreach and in principle, and adding to it other things I have about concerns about the vaccine, I'm not going to get it. I may be someone who's already had COVID-19. I may be a pregnant woman. I may be somebody else 
in a category that says, you know what, I think the risk is greater for me to get the vaccine than not to get it. And so there are all kinds of things we could uh, say in, in light of that, but I believe that's what we're talking about here is an issue of wisdom. Just like Calvin said, we need to take a lot of different things into consideration. But lastly, um, the church should allow people, believers, to come to their own conclusions and reject condemnation of others and despising of others. And secondly, the church should be prepared to love and support believers regardless of the decision and the consequences that may follow. If a believer chooses not to get the vaccine and they lose their job as a fireman in L.A. County, uh, the church should support them and help them and support their decision and help them financially and and be uh, behind them. If somebody gets the vaccine and they end up having issues, physical issues, church should be behind them to help support them and walk through them with it, even if you have a difference of opinion. That's the way it ought to be in the body of Christ. And so let me encourage you to think about that, pray about that. Um, Ultimately, the gospel is Jesus, the God-man, lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve to die. He rose from the dead as king of kings. He's our king, not any other government. But the, the issue is, how can I live to please him? But this king is a merciful king. He offers himself as an able and willing savior for all who will repent and believe. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which we will have just in a few minutes. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We acknowledge that we're all having to deal with issues we've never had to deal with before. And we're wrestling with what does it look like to please you. And we're wrestling with the fact that all of us are not on the same page. And we're being tempted to condemn others and to despise others. And uh, we pray, Father, for grace to love, to trust you and to love And we pray that you would help us to grow in that through these very, very difficult times. We thank you that we can trust you, that you are sovereign and you are in charge and you're going to take care of us. And we just pray that we would all be in submission to you, King Jesus. And if there is anyone here this morning who has not returned from their sin and embraced you, Lord Jesus, as their King, as their Lord, as their Savior, then we pray that they would do so and that they would find you to be an able and willing Savior for sinners. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.